Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hague Diplomacy Podcast. My name is Elon Madhavji, and I'll be your host. I hate to be the one to point this out, but today, some form of global crisis is bound to cross your mind, your newsfeed, or your timeline. And I realize that's like a depressingly easy statement to make, considering the pandemic in the room. But you have to admit, there's always some global disaster or injustice that everyone's talking about. And the refresh rate between them only seems to be getting shorter and shorter. Refugees, the climate, social inequality, conflict. These are crises that know no borders, and they certainly don't stop at them to have their passports checked as they affect masses of people around the globe all at once, and sometimes even at random. So how does the world deal with these global crises, and make sure that the response is timely, targeted, and in tune with those in need of help? Well, simply put, they do it together. We're often charmed by the glamorous story of a single world leader or country coming to the rescue while others stand idle. But the reality is that crises have long been co-managed by a committee of states. Those negotiating tables are actually rounder than we think, and that headline-catching hegemon is almost always flanked by allies, neighbors, and sometimes even those just willing to lend a hand. So today we're going to try and better understand the dynamics of that co-management, why the psychology of individual world leaders matters so much, and if those who form public opinion, you and me, can have a say in how our countries act in crisis. Before we begin this first episode of the new year, I just want to take a moment to, to thank you, to thank everyone for continuing to tune in and share the podcast with those around them, because it really seems like there's this beautiful, steadily growing community of listeners, and it's it's such a pleasure for me, and it's a pleasure for the whole team of the journal to actually get to engage with you on a regular basis like this. So thank you so much for continuing to do that. And on that note, if you ever feel that, hey, we need to listen to you and you have something to say or something to ask or just want to say hi, please do reach out to us at podcasthjd at gmail.com. It would be, it would be really cool to, to hear from you. But for now, I think it's time to dive back into co-managing crisis and first understanding why it's such an important issue. And proof of that is that this year's book award from the Hague Journal of Diplomacy was awarded to Professor Marcus Kornpopst for his work titled Co-Managing International Crises, Judgments, and Justifications. And what this cutting-edge book does so well is it uses security crises from the 90s, think Iraq, Kosovo, uh, and a few other cases, to uniquely step back from that process so that we can actually examine it. And what it does is it highlights the dynamics that occurs between states and leaders as they engage their own opinions and judgments while they're working together to solve this problem. So in that sense, who would be a better person to speak to than Marcus himself, who is uh, the foremost expert on co-management? And I am very grateful that he took time recently out of his professorial and chair duties at the Vienna School of International Studies to speak to me about this issue. And today I was thinking you and I could sit down and listen into some parts of that conversation, starting with exactly how he defines co-management and what kind of crisis it can be used for. Hi, Marcus. Thanks so much for joining us today and taking the time. Obviously, as you know, we're here to uh, start talking about 
your award-winning book and then head off and see where that takes us uh, within the, the field of co-management. There's a lot to uncover. So I just want to, I just want to dive right in. And firstly, uh, what struck me as most interesting immediately, even when I just read the title of your book, I started to second guess to myself, what exactly is co-management? It's maybe, you know, when you read about co-managing crises, you think, oh yeah, I think I understand what that is. But Yet, there is a cutting-edge book that's being released uh, this year about it. So there's clearly something that we're not thinking of when we think of co-management or something we need to understand better. So what, what is it to you, and what do we need to understand better about it? Yeah, Eden, no, thanks a lot, first of all, for inviting me uh, to, the, to, the, to the series and, uh, and for starting off with a very good question uh, straight away. So when we look at literature that is written in international relations, when we also look at how practitioners, many practitioners, think about how one is to cope with a crisis, then the assumption is oftentimes that it's one actor alone who has to somehow de-escalate the crisis, he has to de-escalate a situation that uh, threatens to spiral out of control. And um, if we look at how crises are managed in our days, then that is basically never the case. So there are always multiple actors, um, state and oftentimes actually also non-state actors. Um, and, um, and the trick about uh, de-escalating a crisis is really that they have to cooperate, they have to work together. And this was this idea about the co-managing international crises. So if one opens up uh, the newspaper today, um, and then there is uh, all kinds of things are written about, uh, say, uh, Iran, Israel, and Iran going nuclear. Um, at the same time, I'm standing here, and not too far away from here, there are the, the nuclear talks here in Vienna. Um, and uh, there are quite a few parties uh, involved there uh, in different roles. And uh, whether one can actually move forward with that or not will probably be uh, uh, determined whether these parties, these very different parties, can actually cooperate with one another, whether they can co-manage the situation. Yeah, so it, it's clear to me, based off what you're saying and the, the, the parts of your work that I've been able to read, that co-management obviously fits uh, very nicely within perhaps our understanding of diplomacy, but the way you talk about it is it's not just co-management Monday to Friday, nine to five. You're talking about co-management in crisis. So the moments where coming together and teamwork is most needed to solve the most difficult, the most complex crises, co-management in that sphere. Now, for someone who hasn't read your book yet or dove into similar research, what kind of crises can we think of when we're talking about co-management among states at this level? I mean, I always, um, so when I, when, I write, when I wrote the book, then I obviously thought about uh, security crises. So uh, and in the book, there's a uh, the case on Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, early to mid-1990s, Kosovo, uh, late 1990s, and Afghanistan, early zeros, and then uh, Iraq, uh, early zeros, a few years later. And uh, so this is what I had in mind. Um, and uh, even in those cases, although in some of those, uh, Afghanistan, uh, Iraq in, in particular, the hegemon really asserted itself, the United States really uh, asserted themselves. Um, even in those cases, uh, you can show quite clearly that diplomatic communication actually made a difference. 
even for in terms of how uh, US decision makers uh, came to make up their minds about crucial steps in the process. And, um, and then uh, having completed that project, then, uh, then I looked at uh, other kinds of crises. I looked at health crises, for instance. And uh, if, when, if, we, if we look at what's happening right now with the pandemic, then that obviously is a global health crisis, um, a very protracted one. And, uh, and it involves a host of different actors. And, um, and, uh, and the virus obviously doesn't require an entry visa or anything like that. Yeah? It just travels very easily across borders. And because of that, different state actors and of course also non-state actors have to work together. Uh, so uh, the medical community, uh, they are uh, very, very, very important at the moment. They help us to make sense of the crisis. And without this kind of sense-making, um, reasonable decisions cannot be made. When it comes to these reasonable decisions, and it's very important that the acts that, that states to uh, a considerable extent actually uh, work together, because otherwise there's just no resolving of the crisis. Well, to some extent, this, uh, this, uh, this, the need for crisis core management goes hand in hand with globalization. And uh, so when the world becomes more one, um, then uh, challenges uh, that are very important, uh, that have to be dealt with, uh, situations that can spiral out of hand on a global scale, and uh, they need to be addressed by global actors together. And again, uh, if, we, if, we, if we think even the, the most powerful uh, nation in the world, which is the United States, uh, they obviously can't resolve uh, a pandemic all by themselves and very, very far from that. At this point in the conversation, I just started becoming comfortable enough to begin looking past the surface of these issues, and I'm sure you are too. Now, unlike traditional negotiating between states, I started seeing how they were all to a degree on the same side of the issue, rather than sitting across from each other. So how does that change things? When I was reading Marcus's work and also looking up other examples of coalitions of states tackling an issue, the talks don't really use traditional bargaining chips that adversaries would, but it's rather how each party sees the issue that instigates change in the discussion. And it's also worth noting that at this highest political level, all those issue-specific experts, advisors, ministers, diplomats, etc., they all sit behind the head of state, who at the end of the day is the one in the room calling the shots. And I know it might be hard to believe at times, but that individual, that world leader, is also a human being. So that comes along with a psychology of fears and risk-taking, past experiences they've learned from, and also personal goals, some that might be known, some that might be hidden. And yeah, as I go through it now, I, I have to admit, it, I kind of get why this topic is a bit elusive or complex. Because on the one hand, we're drawing from so many different variables that are deeply personal on an individual level. But then we're throwing them into a theater of high diplomacy, where the dynamics between states occur on one side of the table as a collective, but then there's a clock, it's an urgent issue, it's crisis, so decisions need to be made yesterday and then already make a difference tomorrow. So no wonder Marcus is one of the first to properly step back and try and learn from those moments so that we can inform the next one. Let's take a listen to this next segment from our chat where we trade ideas on some of these themes.
You said something like, as countries make up their mind while working together. And I find that interesting because maybe uh, at times we think perhaps, you know, with these great powers, uh, maybe the, the headline understanding is that they go in and they stamp their authority on an issue or how it should be dealt with and they decide, you know. Um, but from your work, it's very clear to see that every party coming to the table has some sort of a preconceived notion, whether it's an opinion, uh, an understanding, if I may cheat a little and steal from your lexicon, a prejudgment. And it's when they come together to co-manage that something happens in that mysterious black box when they're at the table and something happens to these judgments and to these initial stances. So how does co-management in these crisis scenarios, whether it's for a great power like the United States that has uh, more resources than any other to assert their will or their prejudgments, or someone who's at the table with a more niche, smaller interest, how does co-management actually influence those those notions and those opinions that they have before they get to the table while they're at the table. Yeah, so um, in the book, I make a difference. So, so first of all, in the book, I look at leaders. Uh, so, and, and I think that is, uh, that is justified because so in, in, in crisis situations, decision-making authority, usually not the jure, but the facto, sometimes also the jure actually moves upwards. Um, so leaders actually have quite, uh, quite a say. And then, uh, and then I look uh, at it basically almost from a psychological, uh, political psychology point of view. Uh, so trying to understand how do those leaders tick. And, um, and I basically differentiate between the two kinds of political judgments that they make, prejudgments and resonance judgments. And um, prejudgments are the preconceived notions that they have about something. So um, they uh, put to you certain clues that they have in a repertoire, things that come natural to them. Uh, so British decision makers, for instance, uh, they oftentimes draw on the analogy of appeasement, the Munich uh, analogy when it comes to matters of war and peace. And uh, they applied it to a certain uh, situation. And, uh, and, and, and one of my key findings is that leaders usually do not revisit these pre-judgments. Yeah? Um, what they do, though, is they build around these pre-judgments. They build many, many other judgments. Um, so they add many more understandings of a situation and many more understandings about what ought to be done in that situation. When it comes to this belt around these prejudgments, then there's a lot of pushing and shoving going on. And this pushing and shoving happens in communicative encounters, justification, sometimes privately, sometimes publicly. And it happens in domestic politics and it happens in international politics. Um, so uh, while I say that diplomacy is very important and there are uh, fascinating uh, details, I think, in the in the in the in the book about, uh, say, Blair's attempts to to influence Bush and uh, to what extent that worked or not, um, and uh, also uh, if, one, if one looks at, at Bosnia, for instance, then then America actually originally was quite hesitant to intervene, and over time uh, with a lot of pushing and shoving. Uh, um, things change there quite, uh, quite uh, critically. And, uh, and then, so, and this, so this, this international one, that's really the one side of the story, this international pushing and shoving, the diplomatic interaction. 
Um, and then obviously there's also the domestic politics one. And, uh, and one of the key findings of the book is actually that, uh, that the domestic one over time has become more important. Um, so over time, the procedural inklings of leaders have moved more towards um, not going against the own domestic public opinion. Um, and perhaps most pronounced uh, in France, uh, but also in the, in the UK in my, in my, in my research. Yeah? So uh, if you compare someone like Mitterrand to someone like uh, Chirac, then uh, for Mitterrand, public opinion and, and international politics really didn't go together. Yeah? Um, he, and then and, and, and media, and he basically had one journalist, he, he was keen on, on, on reading and that was it. And uh, if one then looks at uh, Chirac and uh, his, his, uh, his uh, management and um, then the Kosovo crisis and, and thereafter, then there is a lot more of this, uh, of, this, of this trying to take public opinion into consideration. One could look at that in our days, yeah? And that is probably one side of, uh, of uh, populist uh, parties and their foreign policy is that they put domestic politics above international politics. Yeah? So um, if one looks at, uh, at Trump, for instance, when he addressed the General Assembly in New York, uh, then his real audience uh, were actually his constituents uh, in, in the United States to, and not the, the, the ambassadors and other leaders uh, sitting in the General Assembly. Okay, so if you know, if I understand you correctly, then these prejudgments, these preconceived notions, they go through, like you said, pressures from left and right, whether it's from the international dialogue and diplomacy happening at that level, or behind them within their own constituencies, their understanding of the situation and how that then sculpts each individual co-managing actor, if you will. That sort of makes me wonder though because you, you mentioned individual names of leaders and how they had different approaches to things and just personally for me as i continue to dive into the world of diplomacy it's always been kind of a, a question of mine you know like how how important is the individual in the room versus the state they represent or the guidance they get from their capital etc cetera, etc cetera. so have you noticed through your research that in fact, it is the approach and the, perhaps even the character or psychology of that individual leader that can determine how an individual state acts in such crises situations. And determine, I think, is, a true, is probably a very strong word because, uh, um, but there's no question about it, that, that, um, that individual judgments, individuals matter. Um, so uh, let's say if we look at John Major and then Tony Blair, um, then those are really big differences. Yeah. So um, John John Major, in procedural terms, basically relied on his advisors, uh, very reluctant to make any decisions uh, himself. So then, uh, um, defense minister, foreign minister, actually had uh, a lot of influence. Um, also very reluctant to engage in any military uh, endeavors. And um, 
with Blair, then we did the exact opposite. Yeah. So um, Blair, very proactive, wanting to stand tall for his country in international affairs, and um, and uh, not listening to advisors, and less and less listening to advisors. Yeah. So originally, yes. So during the Kosovo crisis, still quite a bit. Um, and then less and less, yeah. So these these leaders they also learn in office, and, and learning is now in, in that way really uh, uh, just a scholarly term. Uh, it doesn't mean that uh, that their decision making gets better over time. It actually can get worse. Um, so leaders can get uh, uh, too overconfident. Uh, they can uh, sideline uh, advisors more and more. Uh, they can kick out advisors uh, who uh, say their contrary opinions and replace them uh, with people who uh, were content and just saying yes. Um, and um, so I think individuals, they can make a, a big difference. Of course, at the same time, uh, there are certain uh, um, military, economic, and so on resources of a country and of course, they uh, they matter. Uh, but I think it also matters who puts them to use uh, for what cause. And I think there are quite pronounced differences. Yeah, it, you know that just reminds me of you know every time an American president is elected, you know there's always someone in the news who says, "Oh well, this person's going to get the nuclear launch codes," you know, and it's that individual, and it's going to be their judgment of such a crisis that could determine the end of uh, humankind. And yeah, in, in these high stakes situations, you're right. It's it's how that individual representing that state interprets their, uh, their country's capabilities, uh, their country's stance on these matters. But then that does make me think, though, because as you mentioned earlier, increasingly we're seeing that domestic politics and the domestic constituency is having uh, a greater role to play. So does that mean that in spite of what, uh, whether, you know, you're for or against the particular, you know, character or psychology of your state's leader in these situations, does that mean that we, the people, are having a larger footprint in these co-managing situations? Does that mean that people are having more of a say to, uh, to how their country is acting in spite of perhaps maybe uh, negligent leaders or leaders they don't agree with? I would say yeah. So I mean, I mean, it depends. It depends on on uh, on on what I call these prejudgments of leaders. Yeah. So some are more um, more inclined to follow public opinion, and others less. Um, some are very much inclined in trying to sway public opinion, um, and uh, and then once the the the, the consent majority consent is there then uh, they're gonna act as yeah, so they always try to influence public opinion um, but of course uh, spin is a two-edged sword very much so yeah um, so in principle of course a, a democratic uh, a democratization of of foreign policy foreign policy making would be desirable yeah um, but that uh, presupposes that uh, that the way how facts are presented, the way how um, a situation is being made sense of, that that really is reasonable. Yeah, so that that it follows the facts, um, and there is not too much spin. Um, 
a little bit of spin and conflict situations, unfortunately, will always be unavoidable. Yeah? Um, but one can greatly overdo it. Yeah? So someone in my study who uh, greatly overdid it, of course, was Tony Blair, um, um, who uh, tried to influence uh, public opinion, a big public opinion machinery, uh, and did that in highly sophisticated ways. Um, uh, even during the Iraq crisis, yeah, all the during the Iraq crisis really was an uphill battle. Uh, it's just that uh, that there were uh, obviously there was a manipulation of facts, and and then we obviously run into massive difficulties. Yeah? Um, so so if this manipulation does not happen, then of course democratization of foreign policy decision making, I think. Uh, is is definitely wanted, yeah. Um, um, but but we do face we do face all kind of of problems with uh, fake news and all of that. There's given the the, the cases that I that I chose, 1990s, uh, early zero, zeros. There's uh, not much in there about digital international relations, something like that yet. And obviously that changes uh, things uh, in, in, in massive ways. Uh, the way where people get information from, um, what they make of it, echo chamber effects and, and all of that. So, so there's definitely uh, quite a bit of reason for concern there as well. speak for you, but it goes without saying that I am far from an expert on this very specific issue. But at the same time, it doesn't really take a Hague Journal of Diplomacy book award winning author to realize that there might just be a global crisis happening around us now that's proving a little difficult to co-manage. So just for you and me, the non-experts, I wanted to challenge Marcus for a little analysis on the latest effort that the world has made to co-manage the pandemic, just to illustrate all these issues we've been talking about a bit better. Okay, there you go. So I, now I think, so let's just take a moment to, if we think back to all the things we've talked up until now, I kind of want to throw a, a little impromptu case study your way. I, uh, I was reading this week and last about the, what they're calling the pandemic treaty, um, which I'm sure you're uh, a, a, at least a little bit aware of. And um, even just this past week, the 192 members of the, the World Health Organization, the WHO, came together to discuss this. And the idea, you know, obviously, without doubt, came about due to the pandemic situation we, we find ourselves in. And yeah, to varying degrees, we've seen how the collective co-management on a global scale of this global health crisis um, has impacted states differently. Some have been better off, some have been far worse off. And there are large groups of WHO members saying, hey, we need to rethink and recodify, actually, how we as a, as a global community support each other through this. So um, this pandemic treaty obviously will take years to 
negotiate. I believe they've just agreed on uh, setting up an, uh, a body that will negotiate it. And I believe the expiry date right now is 2024. So it'll take some time. But even before we've gotten to that stage, uh, there's been what we can call some prejudgments. The United States has already sort of alluded to the fact that they're less inclined to have some sort of a legally binding treaty. And then on the other side, uh, the, the Germans, the Europeans have been very open about the fact that there needs to be some sort of a legal binding mechanism. There needs to be more accountability. Um, and then there's a large group of states, uh, particularly from Africa, who've suffered greatly in access to things like vaccines, resources, testing, uh, and research abilities saying, hey, yeah, this can't happen again. So considering your expertise, how would you, how would you sort of approach such a project, a pandemic treaty, uh, knowing all that we know now and considering some of the lessons you've been able to uncover through co-management? Yeah, so basically, um, so if I, if I, if I go, go to the book very briefly, yeah, and, um, and the idea about a pandemic treaty, there would be a lesson learned from, uh, from the COVID crisis. And, um, and this is a little bit along the lines how it happened with SARS-CoV-1, yeah? so the SARS crisis um, in the early zeros. Um, and because uh, that, that drove home to people, okay, so it was by far not as bad as it is, as it not, not comparable on scale and everything, but it nevertheless, uh, so it appeared in three, on three continents and people thought, okay, so we really have to up our game in terms of uh, global health. And, um, and then uh, the, the international health regulations were revised. And uh, they were revised in order to make uh, it impossible for something like SARS-CoV-1 to happen again. Yeah? And here we are now, yeah? so with a virus that is, that is uh, called SARS-CoV-2. So also coronavirus, uh, very close, but obviously much more contagious. Um, and um, so it's quite logical, I think, when, to be expected that there will be now a discussion about uh, lessons to be learned. And the discussion, there are basically three proposals, uh, I would say, uh, three clusters of proposals on the table. There's one to revise uh, the international health regulations once again. Um, there is uh, one to have a pandemic treaty, and within that there's a debate about whether that's framework convention or so exactly how to do it. And then finally, there are also proposals on the table, but really only by some members of the medical community uh, to grant much more authority to the World Health Organization. Uh, so basically to, have to create or to even create a new organization and that would have supranational powers. Yeah? I mean, what, what has gone wrong or what is going persistently wrong uh, with this, this uh, crisis management uh, and global health? There are, uh, at least at least three uh, problems. Yeah? So number one is that uh, healthcare systems in most parts uh, of the world uh, are utterly underfunded. Yeah? Um, that means detecting uh, um, a virus or a disease, uh, an unusual disease um, somewhere is difficult. And uh, once it breaks out and crosses borders and everything, it's very difficult to counter. 
Um, another massive problem is that states usually just don't report. Yeah? So they have reporting obligations under the current interna international health regulations. Um, they are supposed to report uh, an unusual serious outbreak uh, within 24 hours, but they don't do so. So, uh, so China reported probably something like two, three, four weeks late. Yeah? Um, and that is early on in a, in a, in a, in a situation like this. this. This is a massive problem. Yeah? Um, it's very, very rare that states do report timely. A very, very exception now is actually with the Omicron uh, variant in South Africa. They did report very promptly. Yeah? And um, yeah, and then and 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 and, and that, that is where supranationality, to some extent, or the idea of supranationality comes in, because if uh, if the reporting is left to states, then um, you have to be able to rely on those states that they really will report. Yeah? Um, uh, it's a little bit like uh, weapons inspectors and uh, relying on. Uh, on states to report their weapon stocks uh, without uh, independent verification, uh, say nuclear weapons uh, by the IAEA. No one would come up with this idea. Yeah? It would not make sense. And uh, my comparison is not quite accurate, but I think it goes a little into that direction. Yeah? And uh, so I, I do think that the World Health Organization would need to have the authority to inquire independently uh, from from uh, so that from from what a state wants in a, in a particular moment in time to inquire independently about what's going on there, and um, and of course I mean as you as you pointed out correctly a lot will uh, hinge on financing uh, these measures there yeah, because uh, so we have uh, witnessed now all kinds of vaccine nationalism uh, we witnessed uh, a framing of the debate uh, in in nation states very much along national lines yeah um and that is obviously problematic yeah for for uh, lots of different reasons um um and if i think it's quite useful to look there at uh, at founding document of the world health organization health is a human right yeah? and human right obviously is applicable throughout the world yeah it's not uh, it's not something that is confined to uh, the global north or something like that. And um, I think this is where we really have a problem. We also have a problem in medically because, uh, because if uh, most of most people do not have access to, to, to vaccine, then vaccines and you're obviously gonna get all kinds of variants uh, that are gonna uh, haunt us then in the in future. And this will not only happen uh, in, the, in the global south, but it will happen in the global north. As well. well, so I mean, it's 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 sometimes shocking to hear. Uh, it seems like even after such a, a great crisis that has affected the world, it seems like uh, an old school real politique uh, kind of realist approach to these issues still prevails. States want to protect their sovereignty. The idea of, like you said, a supranational organization having the power to uh, go within their borders to research or inspect a particular sensitive issue is is perhaps still beyond uh, what states want. And ultimately, and I know you, you've mentioned this yourself in your work, um, maybe at the end of the day, that's still what it comes down to, um, which is, yeah, a, a harsh reality, especially considering the climate in which we, we were discussing this.
I know I said I wasn't an expert, but I might be right with the simple yet destructive observation that states still look out for their own, even within those sturdy multilateral walls of the WHO. And ultimately, this just makes it harder to globally tackle these global problems. But that's enough with the pandemic. I realize this podcast has used it a few times in the past, and I think maybe it's going to be my New Year's resolution to stop juicing that low-hanging fruit. So to do that, I decided to end my chat with Marcus with another Hague Diplomacy podcast trope, and that's asking the question, well, what does it mean for me, and what does it mean for you? All of us in our own way, regardless of how we lead our lives, co-manage our fair share of crisis, some big and some small. And many of our listeners operating in the field of diplomacy and international relations may wake up tomorrow with a crisis fresh on their desk and be forced to work with other organizations, other states, and even colleagues to solve it. So what can we learn from Marcus to be better co-managers ourselves? I do criticize the, the general approach. Uh, so, so what you label the realist approach, um, because I do think that it is self-defeating, and I think it's quite obvious that it's self-defeating. Yeah? So that uh, if, if, the, if the, 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 the problems are increasingly global that we have to deal with, and our responses uh, remain on a national level and remain in terms of the timeline, very, very short-sighted, yeah? So cycle of, of, uh, of, say, four years from one election to the next, something like that. And I think we are really in dire straits. And I'm actually not that pessimistic, I, I have to say, um, because um, the diplomatic community is not monolithic at all. Um, so there are some people actually very, very uh, progressive and really, really do see the, the global challenges and there are others who don't. There are also those who do see these challenges, but they're held back by considerations of the government. Um, this is obviously uh, problematic for the, for, the, for the debate that we have, but also uh, to some extent expected from, from diplomacy. So things are not going to change from one second to the other. Um, but I think, uh, but I firmly believe that we have to embrace more of a, of a global outlook on, on things. Um, otherwise, I think uh, this, this co-managing crisis is going to remain a very elusive affair. And um, it's also something that, so, so it's not only that we live in an age of crises, it's not only that there are lots of crises. You mentioned at the beginning quite a few of them, yeah? uh, so security, economics, migration, uh, we added now health, uh, we added environment. It's also that uh, they are oftentimes very much interrelated. Um, and, uh, and, and so if too much of this happens at the same time, um, that, that usually uh, in, in world history, they led to major ruptures. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I do hope that we have learned a little bit from, from that in the, in the past. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, that's a very that's a very good summary. I think of of maybe how our outlook should be, uh, and I hope I hope anyone listening in can. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's 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 been a bit grim in terms of the topics we've talked about and how dire it can be. But the fact that you remain optimistic after all of this is a a, a beacon of hope, at least for me. And something I'm hearing from you that I I definitely will try and integrate at least for myself is yeah to treat. To treat these issues, uh, especially those on a global stage, with uh, a type of co-management equal to its 
universality. So uh, these global issues require global co-management. Uh, and you're right that maybe, you know, this book has come at a, at a necessary time when we need to actually uh, step back a bit from the process of co-management and, and see it as something we can study and improve and a, a skill almost we can sharpen rather than something that happens because we need to figure something out together. Um, so maybe to be a little more active in our pursuit of collaboration and co-management, if, if that may be fair to say. <laughs> That's very fair to say, yes. <laughs> well, there you have it, Marcus's seal of approval. Looking at crisis collectively de facto means opening ourselves up to the judgments and opinions of our fellow crisis solvers, but also seeking cooperation that matches the level of universality of the issue at hand. And that may ask from us a very uncomfortable task, to admit that the best solution to crisis may in fact not be our solution to crisis, and that the interests of our teammates may have equal value to that of our own. I hope this episode has done for you what it did for me, and that's open up a bit of that black box on how exactly states work together to tackle the most global and acute problems humankind faces. So next time we see that flashy headline talking about world leaders coming together or a summit to end the next major crisis, we will now be able to read beneath that line and know how co-management truly works for all its human flaws and potential. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time.